Our gospel reading today, the 14th chapter of John, beginning at the first verse. This is Jesus speaking. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. This month of July, I've been preaching a sermon series going back to our first meditation on God's passion. If you are visiting for the first time today, or if you're a member who's been out of town, I would encourage you, as I often do, to go to our website and listen to those previous meditations, because what we're meditating on today from John 14 builds on what we have learned together from God's Word in those previous sermons. And so, they're available on the church website. Uh, as an audio file, and you can listen to those. And we have sermons going back several months. And if you think a friend, a classmate, a loved one might benefit from any of those sermons, you can simply uh, send that as a link. We don't have to do uh, hard copy recordings anymore. It's all available electronically. So we started with God's passion, and we know that God is a God of passion because of the love with which he loves us, agape love which is different than the way we speak of love for so many earthly things, love of weather, love of a particular food, love of a sports team. Um, God's agape love, that's the word the New Testament uses to describe this love we see in Christ, is like none other. It's unconditional. Even that word passion uh, has kind of a double entendre. You can speak of passion as a really intense love. You also can think of passion as suffering. And in Christ, we see the suffering and the intense love, the perfect love, the agape love meeting in the man of sorrows on the cross. And then last week, we focused on God's presence. And the gist of that um, message, based on God's word, is that even when we don't feel God's presence, he's there. That God's presence is not dependent upon our perceptions or our emotions. Yes, it's a wonderful, beautiful, um, assuring thing. When we feel the presence of the Lord in worship, at a convention, uh, at a funeral, in a time of uncertainty. But we must not think that God has somehow gone away or abandoned us if we don't feel his presence in those moments the way we have felt them in others. And we look to Jesus to learn this, who on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus wasn't feeling the presence of the Father. And yet on the cross, we see God himself in the flesh being crucified. And so today we conclude this series on God's promise. And I hope and I pray that you'll be blessed by these words. Now there are certain passages in Holy Scripture that are read more often than others. And I hesitate to say that there are Scriptures that are more popular because that would say that some Scriptures aren't popular. All of God's Word is truth. All of God's Word is worthy of our study as it instructs and tells us more about who God is and how He has acted in history. 
But there are those passages that seem to be read more often than others. For example, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Say it if you know it. When is 1 Corinthians 13 read most often? Weddings. You've been around. Faith, hope, and love abide. These three and the greatest of these is love. It's a wonderful text for a wedding. Of course it's read at weddings because any young couple as they turn and walk down the aisle into an unknown future will need lots of faith, lots of hope, and a whole lot of love if their marriage is to survive, if they are to flourish, if they are to live the life that God endeavors for them. But I often remind those couples who have selected 1 Corinthians 13 as the reading for their wedding day that this kind of love, it's agape love, by the way, described in 1 Corinthians 13, it is never irritable. And it's very interesting to ask, how's that going? In that last premarital session, just days before the wedding, and I don't want to say anything sexist, so I'm not going to tell you who's more irritable as her wedding day approaches. And so we're reminded that in 1 Corinthians 13, it's this kind of love that the Lord has for us. Not irritable. Jesus is not resentful. Jesus doesn't keep a record of wrongdoing. Jesus rejoices in the right and in the truth. And it's that passionate agape love that we receive in Christ that we hear of on wedding days And it's that same love with which we are called to love one another, knowing that we always fall short of the mark, but it's the goal. Uh, It's the desire, not just for husbands and wives, but that all brothers and sisters in Christ would have that patient, long-suffering love for one another. How about today's reading from John 14? When do we hear this one most often? Funerals memorial services, and for good reason. Even when people tell me in planning a funeral for a loved one, we don't want this to be sad or depressing or negative. We don't want it to be macabre. We want it to be a joyful, upbeat celebration of life. And you know, I get that. But somebody's died. And even if that person has lived 90 plus years, death brings separation. It brings sadness Um, Death has this power, this side of heaven. And we hear from Jesus, who is the one who had victory over death, even at memorial services and funeral services, promising that he's going to take us to the Father's house. And even though there is this slight momentary affliction, this separation from our friends and loved ones, there'll be a great reunion in the Father's house where Jesus has prepared a place specifically for every single one of us. And I want us this morning to think on and pray on John 14 a little more closely than we may do in other settings. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Okay, it's always important to ask the questions, who? To whom is Jesus talking? And why would their hearts be troubled in the first place? Well, like the memorial services, when John 14 is read, because a death is involved, a death is involved here, but it is a death that has yet to take place. It is imminent. It is forthcoming. 
Jesus, in the previous chapters, as John records it for us, has once again reminded his disciples, when we go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. I will be betrayed. You can read about this in chapters 12 and 13. So this is why the disciples are troubled. This is the reason their hearts are not at peace. The one they have been following faithfully for three years is not only going away, he's going to die. And this troubles them greatly. And in fact, it even troubles Jesus. If you look in the previous verses in John's Gospel, Jesus even says, my death is coming and I am troubled. And if you want to cross-reference another text, you can write this down and look it up later. In Matthew 26, we hear these words. Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over and pray. And then Jesus said, my soul is overwhelmed. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Stay here and keep watch with me. Even in the garden, Jesus was troubled. And he says in verse 42, Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. May your will be done. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had a heart that was sorrowful and troubled, but he submitted his life, his ministry, his future into the hands of the Father. May your will be done. And in God's will, and in God's plans, and in God's purposes, Jesus found the strength, the wherewithal, to face what awaited him. To meet his own death. This is very important. Jesus did not tell those troubled disciples to have trouble-free hearts because he had been so completely stoic and unmoved. Jesus is telling the disciples, do as I do. His own heart was troubled. And in that, he committed himself again to God, to the Father. And he tells the disciples, and he tells you and me to do the same. We find peace in our trouble in the troubled world when our hearts are troubled, when we place our lives, our future, and yes, even our death in God's sufficient hands. And in telling the disciples, don't be troubled, he explains how this can be accomplished. And he doesn't tell them, look, get over it, man up, what's wrong with you? Get out of your pity party. Jesus doesn't give them 10 easy steps to a trouble-free heart or show them some breathing exercises they can practice at home to reduce anxiety. What does Jesus explain? How does he tell them to find peace? Well, listen to the Lord. Believe in me. Believe in God. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I'm going, you're going to be. I'm going to take you there. This advice... This council, do you understand how revolutionary and subversive it is? 
It flies in the face of today's conventional wisdom. When we have problems, there are many people who write books and have very successful television programs who tell us that the answers can be found within. When we have trouble, some tell us that we possess autonomously all the resources needed to get over them. Now, I'm not denying that with good teachers and loving parents and wise coaches and mentors, we can learn certain things about how to live in this world and not just exist. But here we're talking about the sin and the death problem. And we don't have the resources within to be victorious over this problem. Have you ever heard the expression, when life gives you lemons, we'll just make lemonade? That was so popular not too long ago. Thank the Lord, this is not what Jesus tells us. All the sugar and all the positive thinking in the world and all the strength that we can muster from within will not solve this death problem, this sin problem. It's too great to live forgiven, to live redeemed, to live transformed, to live a purposeful life, to fearlessly face the inevitable truth that life as we know it will come to an end for every single one of us, we need something bigger and something better. We need Jesus. And he tells us, look outside yourself. There are many answers. There's many solutions that can be found in here and in here. But for this one, it's found in Christ and Christ alone. How many of you were members of our congregation? years and years ago, when the relatively new senior pastor suggested that we as a congregation during the season of Lent read Purpose Driven Life. And some of you read that in other places and in other congregations. Well, when I made that suggestion, I got people, some people, very angry. First of all, Some people were angry that I suggested we in a Lutheran church read a book written by Rick Warren, a Baptist. And um, what a difference a few years can make because I didn't hear anyone boo or hiss when Billy Graham's image, a Baptist, appeared on the slideshow. And I want you to know this about Billy Graham. He said that we Lutherans have the best theology If only we would use it. (laughs) So some people were angry that the Lutheran asked us to read a book by a non-Lutheran. And I just said to those folks, well, put on your Lutheran lens. I mean, use your Lutheran hermeneutic. When, When you hear something or read something in this book and the discussion that was going on and it doesn't sound quite right, well, then offer a loving critique of how we Lutherans might look at this differently. But you know what really got people upset? The first four words, especially baby boomers, who've been told from day one that we are the center of the world. And those first four words, you remember, it's not about you. That's what got so many people upset. They wanted to read a book, like so many books, that was all about them. And Warren went on to write in those introductory words, Contrary to what many popular books, movies, and seminars tell you, you won't discover your life's true meaning by looking within yourself. Listen to this. God is not just the starting point of your life. He's the source of it. 
To discover your purpose in life, you must turn to God's word, not the world's wisdom. Gosh, that sounds awfully Lutheran to me. And it was during that Lenten season, so many years ago, when we're reading this book, that a, uh, a young man in our congregation who had called me many times at home in the middle of the night, despondent, depressed, just needing someone to talk to, came and told me that reading Purpose Driven Life saved him. He'd had counseling. He took the prescribed medications, but he still felt worthless. He felt like he was damaged goods. And he said to me that his life was saved by reading this book. And he thanked me. Well, it wasn't the book that saved him. It wasn't Rick Warren, and it certainly wasn't the senior pastor. It was God speaking his loving grace into this man's heart through the means of this book. You see, he'd been a churchgoer for a long, long time, but then he realized that there's more to it than just being a churchgoer. He understood for the first time he is the object of God's love. This dear man said it was chapter 2 that got his attention when he read, You're not an accident. And while, yes, there are many illegitimate parents, there are no illegitimate children, God's motive for creating you was his love. This man confessed to me that he did not read all 40 chapters of Purpose Driven Life, that we were, the way we were supposed to do it during the 40 days of Lent. He stayed up on the second night and read the entire book at once. And he said he'd never thought of his life as the result of God's love and purpose. And thanks be to God, he's alive and well. His life's not perfect. Whose life is perfect this side of heaven? But he learned to place his future in the hands of God. And when the world told him he was worthless, he heard again and again the good news that Jesus found him worthy of life itself. He's worth Jesus dying for. And he knows where he's going because of what Jesus did for him on the cross. Knowing where we're going. Knowing where to go. This, friends, was part of the disciples' trouble. They had known where to go for three years. All they had to do was follow Jesus. He said to each and every one of them, come, follow me. They followed, leaving families, jobs, reputation, security, homes behind. And now he's saying, you've been following me and I'm going away. So they must have felt confused, afraid, even alone. Jesus told them where he's going. To the Father's house. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when this life is over, when the road you're on now comes to an end, I'll be there to greet you in your eternal home. But Thomas wanted to know more. He wanted to know the route. He didn't have a global positioning system. He wanted some kind of Jesus GPS. And Jesus made it pretty simple. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You've known me, so you know the Father, and you've seen him. In these words... We have life, not just a recipe for existence. 
to live a meaningful, purposeful life that is God-pleasing, means to follow Jesus, trusting in the promise that God knows better than we. It means doing our best to obey the word, to love the way we hear in 1 Corinthians 13, even when we fail, and asking forgiveness when we fall short. It means defining life and sizing one another up as Christians, not based on worldly categories and yardsticks, but defining life from without by Jesus, not some arbitrary earthly standard. Someday, others will be gathering for your funeral. Yes, they will, mine too. Maybe John 14 will be read at the service. It will be good words for everyone to hear as they mourn your death. But John 14, 1-7 is not just a good Bible reading for a memorial service. It's a word of the Lord for living. For today. For tomorrow morning when you walk out that door again. To greet whatever awaits you. Christ spoke these words to disciples who felt immobilized and fearful and troubled by the news they'd heard so they could move forward, so their fears and their worries would not hold them back, so they could step out, step forward in faith, knowing that their life had godly purpose and meaning. For what purpose are you living day to day? For whom do you live? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He lived and he died for you. So you could have life and live for him. And live with him forever. Forever. And that's his promise. And Jesus always, always keeps his word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.